Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is the proprietor, founder, visionary, uh, and driving force behind what, without question, is my favorite restaurant in the world. And that would be Bradley Rubin, 11 City Diner. Welcome, Bradley. Thank you. Uh, you know, we got to get you eating out more, apparently, if I'm one of your favorites. So for starters. Well, I was thinking this morning, you know, uh, odd thoughts come into all of our minds at times. And I was thinking this morning, if I was standing alongside, do you remember the great movie, The In-Laws with Alan Arkin and Peter what do you Falk? Mean? Did, I, did, I, did I remember it? I was shown it by my father probably once, twice a year. Are you kidding okay. me? There you go. So Serpentine. You Serpentine. Exactly. And uh, so we share an affinity for that movie. And your dad, had, <laughs> your dad has great taste. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I was thinking this morning, if I was standing alongside, and you'll remember the scene, Alan Arkin and Peter Falk, when they were blindfolded, and General Vargas was going to execute them by firing right, right, squad. Right, right. Am I exactly. right with this? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and they were about to be uh, executed by firing a squad. If I was standing there as a third and they said, you have one meal left, where would you want to go? It would be 11 City. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That so it's very nice to say. No. So let's, uh, so let's get into it. And I want to start, Bradley, by uh, going back to when you were, give or take, about 17. Ooh. And you worked for one of the great, great legends that this country has ever produced in the restaurant business, and that was Arnie Morton. Uh, I mean, it's, it, I, I agree with you. Um, Arnie, I, I was given an opportunity to, I mean, I, my entire life, I've been having amazing mentors from my mom and dad, my parents that got me into entertaining to just luck of the draw of who I met when I met them. Um, Arnie Morton is undoubtedly one of my biggest mentors in this business. Um, you know, watching him, first of all, watching him work the floor as a client, right? Just as a little shit, if we went to Morton's, we had, there was one downtown Chicago and I grew up in the Northern suburbs and we were lucky enough that Arnie had opened up a small unit um, and we're in the suburb of uh, Northern Chicago where he lived. And we would go to that more frequently, uh, special occasions too, um, uh, definitely special occasions, but to watch him work a floor, that alone was mentorship. Cause I was just, you know, I had two sisters, a mom and my dad, and I was fascinated with restaurants at an early age. And so before 17, um, eating at that restaurant, growing up in that small suburban town, watching him go from table to table, um, as we used to be able to do pre-COVID, press the flesh, uh, talk to people, smile. I saw him do something when, once with a woman that walked in with a giant hat in the room and other people were complaining. And he had this long explanation about how, you know, a, a, a woman when she walks in is able to wear a hat and she can do what she wants in his space. He was just so gracious and everything was a dance. And I learned to first appreciate the dance of what goes on in a dining room during service from a mentor like Arnie Morton. And, and I learned many, many things watching him and then working for his company and then working for his children throughout the years. I mean, that, they don't make guys like that anymore. I mean, that is an operator. I mean, he paved the way. And there's something about, you know, that immigrant work ethic. And Chicago is a great immigrant town. A lot of Polish immigrants, a lot of Eastern Europeans, a lot of Scandinavians. 
And what the immigrants brought with them way back when my grandfather came through Ellis Island many, many years ago uh, from Russia, is they brought their food with them. They brought their culture with them. And I know that uh, aside from Arnie, one of the other great influences was your mom, Roz, and and your family. (laughs) And I'd love to talk about growing up. And I know you used to visit a lot of the great Jewish delis, Ashkenaz, and some of the other great delis in Chicago. But let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, Well, I mean, the first influence of Jewish cooking, obviously, was when we all get together. And back in the day, it was my grandmother, my bubby, which was my great grandmother, who did not speak English. She uh, escaped and she was over here from Germany. So she got out early. Uh, She was the only one from her family. But she wouldn't speak. She was only Yiddish. And my grandmother and my mother did well and handled themselves well in Yiddish. But it was really the physicality of watching everybody cook. Now, I was the only boy growing up. I had two sisters, still have them, uh, three girl, two girl cousins, an aunt that was close to our age. So it was all women. And the craziest thing is when the holidays, we'd all go over to somebody's house. A, they're cooking for days in advance. But that morning of, of the big, right, and the day before in the morning of, we're at my grandma's house or my mom's house or my aunt's house. And everyone's cooking. For whatever reason, all the sisters and the cousins, the girl cousins were all playing and doing their thing. For whatever reason, I ended up in the kitchen. I wasn't cooking. I was watching. And the physicality of watching people do that dance also, very different dance, but it's the same of pushing somebody aside who's rolling the matzo balls. And and again, we're not talking about big space. You know, this is almost a kitchenette in my grandma's house, watching everybody do this. And and Tupperware was big in the 70s. I I think it's just as big, but it was all the colored Tupperware lining everything up because we're using it the next day or using it hours later if they were cooking that morning for the evening. But watching those early things and the smells, schmaltz does not smell nice, by the way. It doesn't. And you will smell like it all day if you're cooking with it, even for moments in the morning. So those my earliest moments was just not even understanding, not even cooking, but just watching what was going on in the ultra small spaces before holidays. So and that was a super early influence. So it starts with you as a young boy, just watching around you, you intern for Arnie Morton. Yes. Clearly you've been bitten by the bug. And Badly. I read, Badly. I read that you embarked on a motorcycle tour across the country <laughs> Yeah. Is that true? And in yeah. pursuit, I imagine not just great deli food, but uh, 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 delis were evidently the focus of this motorcycle journey. I, well, can we throw diners in there, too? Because sure, my sure. fascination and my romance with delicatessens includes delicatessen diners and includes soda shops and soda fountains and the counters and everything that goes on in places like that, that really doesn't go on in the way it does in fine dining tablecloth or the local Italian spot. I mean, there are lots of beautiful things that go on in all these different immigrant or independent family owned restaurants, but there's something different about the counter at a diner or the counter at a soda shop or the parade of people that comes in for brunch time on a Saturday or Sunday, the shuffle that comes in at a delicatessen in any city. I mean, there's something that spoke to me. It reminded me of 
you know, my, my grandparents and going to restaurants with them or traveling in a car with my sisters and my parents growing up, going to all the Howard Johnsons and every Howard Johnson you can find when traveling, you know, to Florida or Tennessee or Kentucky and, and being around these things and then being on a motorcycle. Yeah. I, I drove around for a number of years and lived with, you know, a set of tools on the back of my bike, building homes and log cabins and finding work where I can. I did it for a couple of years out of college. I had the opportunity to go to, um, can I say shit ton? This is podcast. You can. can yes, yes, yes I you can. A shit ton of delis and diners. And these places are, I mean, it, it, it's like such a cliche. If the walls could talk, let me tell you something. The walls do talk. The people that work there, the, the culture, the, the staff, these women and men have worked there for decades, 30, 40, 50 years. It, it, it's, it's a level of experience. It's a story that's told without even speaking to somebody, just looking at people and watching it. Again, if you can hear, I was fascinated by watching until I got the chance to start working in these. But the, the, you know, the travel around and the motorcycle thing, that just turned me on to other ways that other families and other cultures do delicatessen or do diners or local diners or roadside diners or city diners or, you know, or hotel diners, which is a whole nother bag because you get the whole tourist traveler thing that are in there, you know, with the, with the salesmen and they're in for the day and they're like taking a meeting at the counter. The characters that I saw on the road, you know, riding the motorcycle and going to all these restaurants. And, and remember, I'm away from home for all those years. So ironically, or luckily for me, the draw of the delicatessen, the draw of the diner, I was alone, traveling alone. Where would you go when you rolled into town? You find the first diner, find the first deli. And that was camp. I mean, that was base camp to explore whatever city I was in or wherever I was framing or, or found work in whatever city. You'd go back to the diner and they knew your name and they remembered you. They remember what you had. You felt, you saw people come in and hug each other and have handshakes. It was a place to commiserate. It was a place to celebrate. It was a place to people watch. It was a place to just disappear. It was more than a sustenance. And you can see life happen in a different way at a delicatessen, at a diner, at a family restaurant. And, and that really helped propel this romance I had was those, those, that traveling on the motorcycle, always finding places like that in a new city. And there were tons of new cities. That's I moved around forever. And there's something about these places that leaves an indelible impression. I, I remember I was in Minneapolis, St. Paul for a week and I think it was 1992. And we went to one of the great diners, Mickey's diner in sure. St. Paul. Absolutely. Uh, Paul Kahn is a big fan of that place, I believe. I, I, the first time I heard about it was that Paul, Chef Paul Kahn, had told me about that place. So, yes. And I remember having their hash browns, Potatoes O'Brien. I still remember it. And I was there about a year ago, two years ago, probably, with Louise on our team here. We were going out to see the Target people. Wonderful. And we got to go to a baseball game out there, a playoff game. It was a great stadium. And I said, come on, Louise, we're going to find time and go have breakfast at Mickey's Diner. And sure enough, it was still there. And it was just as good as I remembered it. And it was literally, you know, close to 30 years had passed. But that memory, that walk in, that's that, you know, gruff greeting that you love. 
the good you gruff. love it. You the, love it. Not everybody gruff. understands that. I love the good gruff, uh, but it was just what I remembered. And, you know, I've, you know, had thousands of meals in between. I couldn't remember very many of them, but I sure remembered Mickey's in 92. And when we went there again, I guess it was 2019. What is it about these places, Bradley, that leave such an impression on us and, and we remember it. We can't wait to get there. We can't yeah. wait to get back. And it stays with us. I, I, that, that's an amazing question. And I think it's very much tied to the reason why I fell in love with this segment of the restaurant business, which to me is hospitality, which is why Arnie Morton was an amazing mentor, which is why my very short stint at the Four Seasons, even though it wasn't me and I couldn't wait to wash off that corporate feel, I had an amazing mentor. Um, Tom Segesta and guys like that just got hospitality. There's something, well, obviously there's something about food. We all know that, you know, and, and our, 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 our Art Smith, a, a dear friend of mine, Chef Art Smith, understands what bringing people around the table around food means. So that, that that's the first component. And Art really, another mentor, Art really turned me on to the whole idea of yeah, it's about food and bringing people together around that table. I mean, we knew that. Everyone knows that. It's like so it's an understandable like thought that everyone, you know, everything starts around a table, like at a party. Where's the party? The party always ends up in the kitchen. For whatever reason, it starts in the kitchen, it's in the kitchen, and it ends up nibbling whatever's left over in the kitchen. But there's something that goes on with people and food. It's so innate. It's so warm. It's filling, right? Pun intended. But in these kind of restaurants, maybe it's how accessible it is. Maybe there's a little bit of the pretension in some of our restaurants that's stripped away or not even present because people aren't going there to see and be seen, which the delicatessen, if we talk about Delhi, had its heyday where it was a seen and be seen place when you're going out for the meat sandwich and you're going out to spoil your kids and you know that the table next to you is looking to see it you're spread and you're living life and it's post you know a post depression it's post war the family's doing good you're going out you're having a feast you know you're treating your family well there was a little pretension in that but for the most part i think diners and delicatessens and family restaurants like that are a meeting place and i think it's a place that feels warm to us. We went with our kids. We went with our parents. We took our grandparents too, right? It's got that warmy vibe anyways, but the people who are working in it are amazing. You go to some of these diners and like, we call them gems, right? We don't call these big fancy restaurants. Oh, I got this, the hottest new restaurant. I got news to you. The hottest new restaurant is amazing and it's sexy and the food is phenomenal. Might be pressy, might be affordable. You feel value. You feel great. You still talk about it a week later. But there's a little different feeling. There's a little different accessibility, I think, in a family restaurant. And a lot of it has to do with these people who are there, the people who are working it, and the families that are there. And I think that's part of the magic. I think it's part of the romance that I found in it. And I think that other people, it's, it speaks to them. It's a different language of its own, literally and figuratively. There's a warmth that's there. There's a comforting that's there. There's a sustenance that you know you're going to eat. It's not going to be fancy. It's not going to, you know what you're getting. It might not be the way that you cook corned beef pastrami hash. You might, your potatoes might come with onions and chopped peppers, not in my house, but you know what you're getting. There's an expectation. And I think when a good diner or delicatessen delivers on that, we feel good. 
Absolutely. Fantastic stuff. So let's talk about Eleven City. You open in 2006. Yes. March, uh, March, uh, March uh, 30th, 2006. Great. And let's talk about the journey where the idea came from. What made you feel you were still a young guy? So you, you were really young then. I was, th- that, yeah, I was 35. Yeah. That you were ready to yeah. dive in and have your own place. Yeah. I knew I was ready to have my own restaurant um, way after I opened my first one. <laughs> I knew I wanted my own restaurant. You know, I was lucky enough. I had all these great mentors and I worked in the business um, on and off since I was 17. Um, when I say on and off, there were not long stints that I wasn't in a diner or a deli or fine dining. I worked a lot of fine dining or steakhouses. I loved it. Um, but the weight and the scope of understanding how to run a business and any kind of business, any kind of business, let alone one like a restaurant industry where we're dealing with a very transient, very fluid workforce. People don't typically stay long. Um, They do at 11 City, which is really, really fortunate and so cool. And part of that thing that you say, like what makes it different, people tend to stay longer in a place that kind of has that vibe and that feel like a family and neighbors. And it's like, it's a whole, it's its own living thing. So when did I know I was ready to do my own? Um, The desire uh, came when I came back um, uh, from a a trip overseas and I made this big decision that I was going to dive in and it was scary and I was scared, but I had a lot of really good people around me that encouraged me to do it and told me, um, you're the only one in your own way and just roll the dice and do it. And I literally jumped in and I learned how to run a restaurant in my very first restaurant, even though I had done it for people for years and years and years before. So I started when I was 17, opened my first at 35, and I really started learning how to run a restaurant at 35, 36. <laughs> it's, it's such a quintessential American story. And what is also quintessential here is, you know, you look at people like, you know, Steve Jobs invented something new, right? Elon Musk invented something new. Bradley Rubin invented something new. No, 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 no. You broke new ground. No, no, I can't. I I can't. And it's not me being a, a, a nice Jewish boy, not knowing how to take a compliment. And thank you. It's, it's really, I didn't reinvent something. I, only wanted to kind of keep something alive, something that's not dying per se, but I wanted to do something that spoke to me. And I just brought a a different, not flavor to it, but maybe some nicer finishes to something. Um, I continually tip my hat to my, in this conversation, I'll talk about mentors until I'm blue in the face. I just live by, or try to live as often as I can by, what I learned from my mentors. I learned a lot of bad things, but I learned a lot of great things. Um, I still wield both the bad and the good, but I didn't invent delicatessen. Come on, man. No, no, no. But what you did do, Bradley, and let's give credit where credit is due. You created something that has the authenticity of what we all know and love about a great deli or a great diner, but you put a contemporary, completely unique take on it. And you have weaved in other ethnicities with things like yes. the Mexican scramble, and you've taken but, things but that were old. that's a huge part. That's a huge part of our culture. And you, you created something new. Yeah. 
right. I, 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 the word created, um, how about I gave birth to, how about that? Right. I'll, Cause I I'll didn't make sold. it up, but I recognize what a huge part, um, you know, the, the, the flavors from, from Mexico specifically, I, specifically Mexico, um, the flavors of Mexican cooking are in our daily lives. And, and I'm a three meal a day. We do breakfast all day. So yeah, we brought a lot of Mexican flavor and cooking into a lot of stuff that we do. And, and look, I have had some fun with some dishes, you know, that were a little too Jewy for me. I can say that uh, sure, a little too sure. Jewy to just have fun. And I wanted to keep some of the basics, but really the food shouldn't change. And, and by the way, I tip my hat to all these amazing operators that are, you know, they call it newish delicatessen. It's a thing, you know, they're reinventing, they're doing sauteed gooey duck infused matzo balls. They're doing knishes that uh, have uh, uh, the salt, uh, sprinkled salt from the Himalayan mountains, or, you know, they're, they're infusing uh, berry juice from berries from Narnia from, and, and meat of cows that are massaged for five hours. People are doing all kinds of cool hip things with Jewish deli, and I love it. And they're, they're bringing in all these phenomenally artesian baked breads and different things. And I think it's amazing. I, I, I don't compete in that world. I'm just trying to do Jewish deli the way probably you and I walked into a Jewish deli. But I'm having fun with it, I guess, a little bit where we have a little styling in there. Um, we're having fun with the plating. Um, we are bringing in some different flavors. So I won't say I'm, I, I it was really giving birth to and I had a lot of amazing people that have kind of helped me make it happen. So I, I taking credit is weird for me. It doesn't sound, sounds weird. Uh, well, we'll, we'll force you to take a little bit and, <laughs> and, and going back to that motorcycle era, were there little things that stuck with you, a place that you went to something that you saw that stuck in your mind and yeah. then came to life yeah. in, in your own yeah. way at 11 yeah. city? hundred uh, percent. Howard Johnson's uh, every Howard Johnson's that I went, um, to on the road for whatever weird reason, I, I always hit Howard Johnson's, um, all these little roadside Howard Johnson's or even roadside family diners, um, the interaction of the staff, um, the servers that were there, um, just how warm and like welcoming everybody was. It's real shit. It's a vibe. It, it's, it's people living real lives. And when you ask them for things, they bring them to you and it's it just that exchange that it's such a it's such a simple exchange. It's like, yeah, I know I'm paying for it, but I felt a lot of love being a single traveler on the motorcycle and not knowing anybody and literally popping in for a town for a half hour. And I ride out in the sunset or into the sunset or under the sun. And I'm out 30 minutes later or 45 minutes later. I had a real experience with somebody at a restaurant. I had a real experience with someone in a city and it wasn't like I felt touched. I felt like I experienced that city with that person that lived there and it was real and it, it was fulfilling for me for whatever it was I was looking for on the road at that time and that age in life. And I just thought it was so cool and so inspiring that when it came time for me to do my own restaurant, diners and delicatessens and family restaurants really speak to me because there's a connection in a restaurant like that, that I don't get in fine dining that I don't get in the cool, sexy hip steakhouse or the, the hipster burger bar or hipster fried chicken place or whatever the newest thing of the day is, I don't always get that connection. And, and I do, no matter what city I'm in, I still find the diner in town. 
I still find the deli in town. And the people that work there, it's something special. It's magic. If that doesn't sound too weird, it's, no, it's really not, cool. Not it's at really all. Cool. Not at all. So uh, American cuisine and cuisine globally is constantly inventing and reinventing itself. Yeah. Uh, my son lives out in LA, which is where we met you at 11 City in LA, sure. which we'll yeah. talk about. And, you know, he's going to places like Crossroads that are doing incredible things you know, for vegetarians and vegans and LA has got a whole, you know, very advanced scene out there Very yeah. in that genre. Um, overall, the Jewish deli and the American diner are not disappearing, but they are certainly not on the rise on the whole. Yeah. And I know you uh, were featured prominently in the book that followed the film uh, about Jewish delis. I know the star of uh, was uh, Kenny and Ziggy's at a Houston. Oh yeah, those guys are um, rock stars. Uh, you're talking about um, Save the Deli. Yes, Save the Deli. Yeah, Save the Deli. David Sachs. And talk about what you see here, and uh, are we in danger of losing too many of these great places? You lost Ashkenaz in 2012. Yes, we, we, lo did. we lost yeah. Carnegie Deli. That was there about 102 years in Chicago. Yeah. The yeah. Carnegie closed after 73 years here in yeah. New York. Do you worry yeah. about that as a fan? Well, 100% as a fan. Forget an operator. 100% as a fan. I think what's changing is a couple things. One, the obvious. You talked about it's people's tastes, how we're living. Um, you know, the, the Jewish dad coming in or the Jewish grandfather coming in with his grandkids uh, twice a week, three times a week, uh, and having corned beef and, and matzo ball soup with schmaltz, their doctors aren't recommending that kind of, that kind of food to eat. Um, and also as younger people um, are very conscious of what we eat and how we eat. And let's just say it's safe to say that chopped liver and uh, pickled or corned meats um, and schmaltz and all the stuff you get in a typical Jewish deli, let alone a diner, let's just say it's safe to say uh, those are not on the top of the list. I think people are smarter and we're eating healthier. And that, I think, is an initially scary thing for a lot of people. They worry about what, what can I eat if I go to my friends with the deli, right? Um, we've, I hate to use the word pivot. It's so overused. I never want to hear that word again. Um, we started evolving our menu um, back when we first opened. And when we made the transition to LA to open up our first shop outside Chicago, um, we definitely tried a whole bunch of things. I mean, we tried a whole, and a lot of it worked. Um, and we brought it to Chicago. Uh, I'll use one thing as an example, um, an avocado bagel breakfast, right? It's a big plate and it's beautiful stuff. And we're making it every single morning. And it's, I mean, it, 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 when I say fresh, of course, but when you're doing something out of the box of Jewish deli, and we're doing something in California where there's such a consciousness and there's such a focus on healthier eating and a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's not a diet. It's a real lifestyle. Um, we spent a lot of effort on it. Um, those items ended up being more popular for us on a menu in Chicago when we introduced those in Chicago than it was in LA. And it's a sign of the times that a younger generation, I mean, we're looking at our demographic, a younger generation and the Midwest is now being conscious of how they're eating because those hipster LA things we put on the menu in LA, they're not as popular. They sell, but I think they're selling to the one out of the four person at the table that is, you know, going to eat heavy at night. And everybody else came to us to get the deli on, right? Get the diner on. 
But in Chicago, we're seeing that the same frequency, we're just as busy. We're seeing um, those healthier options, uh, more modern uh, palette things, right? A, a healthier, lighter feeling things sell way more in Chicago. I sell more brisket and French dips in LA than I do in Chicago. And in Chicago, I'm selling the quinoa bowl. Like you'd think that there was, a, a, the, the world is coming to an end. No one's going to have quinoa anymore. They're taking it off all the menus. It's the last day to get it. Come get it while you can. And it's, it, these are like the highest runners. So it's been kind of a little window into, yeah, things really are changing because it's the Midwest market that we see people are really kind of turned on into things. So that, that's been interesting. Um, and how we're, you know, I've got a vegan corned beef on the menu. There's an actual vegan corned beef on the menu and, and it sells. So does it concern me? Yeah, of course it does. But really what delicatessen and diner is, yes, it's about the food. And I am staying true. I'm not getting fancy doing sauteed gooey duck infused matzo balls and all the crazy stuff. Um, I'm staying true to what we do. But I think a big part of what I do and the romance and what I fell in love with and what people keep coming back to, luckily, knock on wood, knock on wood, is that experience. And that's a huge thing. And, and you don't just get it at 11 City, which is why it was tough for me to take a compliment. You're getting that in other mom and pop restaurants. You're getting that in certain retail stores. There are hardware stores still around that you can walk into and it doesn't feel like the big guys, like the big orange guy. We're not going to trash anybody here on your, on your, on your show. Um, but you go into some family hardware stores and there's a real exchange. You can go to some art school stores that aren't the big corporate guys and you walk in and there's still a real exchange. And I think maybe even it's more important coming out of COVID that well, there's a real exchange that's going on in a place like ours and in places uh, of other types of retail that, that are there. And, and that is what I'm worried about losing more than I am about the food. The food, you're going to be able to find the food. It's, can we find it in a place like this? That, that concerns me. And, you know, the majority of the American economy, I mean, this is, you're hitting on an issue which has huge economic implications for our country and for the world because it's small and medium-sized businesses that drive the economy. I mean, we have on our Great Minds show here, we have CMOs of some of the biggest you know, companies in the world. But the fact is that it's businesses like yours where you are your own CEO, CMO, chief brand officer, chief customer officer, chief you bottle name washer. it, chief bottle washer. Um, you know, you're going to determine the success of businesses like yours is going to be as big, if not a bigger determinant in how we yeah. come back post-COVID as the biggest companies on the New York Stock Exchange. Culture is a huge part of that. And I think one of the ways that we will weather the storm is having a real culture, not a culture. I shouldn't say it's not force fed because if you're in business and you've got, I at one time I had almost 200 employees pre COVID, right? Um, we'll see how many we have coming out, but if we have to have a culture at that size, and even when we were a lot smaller, we had a culture. And that's, again, what people are feeling when they're coming in. You know, there's a huge uh, grocery hipster grocery store. I'm hitting the hipsters today. Um, what once was a hipster grocery store chain that was bought by one of the largest companies in the entire planet. Um, it's a different vibe there now. And it's something that I watched and I saw what's going to happen, not as I get bigger, but what's going to happen with time. 
if we if we ease off on that culture or don't stress it enough or don't turn our team onto it in the same way where they buy into it, which is what this is about, if that goes away, do I really have magic? Do I, is it about my food? Will people still come for my food? What are they coming for? And what I am worried about, to go back to one question before that, is if we lose our culture that we have at 11 City Diner, um, if they lose that culture at that hardware store, will I matter anymore? Will I just be a place for food? And I think what I'm looking at now is how are these big corporate guys handling their culture um, with very changing times? I, I mean, it's, I'm 50, turning 52. I haven't seen this much change in my life in one small period. A lot of great change is happening. Um, but I'm worried about our culture and I'm worried about the culture of the places that I've fallen in love with that aren't nothing to do with me that I go to what will happen with there. And that is something that I worry about. And that is something that I'm trying to not retool our company, but refocus my efforts because I'm lucky enough to have a lot of amazing team members that are, are running it very well. And, but what's going to happen with our culture? Well, that confluence of culture, connection, conversation, cuisine, engagement that, that really, absolutely. That, breathes you you smell that in the air when you walk into 11 city was the original location now give or take 15 years old in chicago was it successful right away or did you stumble a bit? <laughs> yeah um that's a really difficult question because i i look at success on different levels and there's different areas of success like when i'm sitting in my restaurant and i look and i see a taxi cab arriving and i it still makes me feel really cool because it's like somebody paid to actually get here and they, it's a destination rather than stumbling upon me because I'm in the neighborhood. That's one kind of success. Uh, another mentor had it where if you can disappear from your restaurant and you come back and most everything is somewhat still together after two weeks of not being in there, that's what success is. And I adopted that for a period of time in my life. Um, I've kind of moved beyond that. But was the restaurant itself successful from the day I opened? Yes and no. From the day that we opened Chicago, there were lines down the block, lines that we don't see now. And the reason we don't see those lines is we couldn't get you sat. I couldn't get you your food within the first, you know, it was 35 minute ticket times. Um, so people were waiting an hour to get just to get in the building. Now on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they're waiting 45 minutes to an hour. Um, but we're able to get your food in 12 minutes, right? Your ticket time is no more than 12 minutes. So as an operator, there's different points of success and maybe it's my upbringing, right? That, that Ashkenazi Midwest hardworking, uh, I, I, just like I can't take a damn compliment, you know, am I successful? Will I ever be successful? I don't know. I'm going to always try to, you know, prove to my, my, my nice Jewish father, I'm a success. I'm always, you know, as successful as you, there's, there's that component. But were we a success from the day that we opened? I, it's difficult for me to say. I'm going to go ahead and say yes, only because the people haven't stopped coming. We've seen an increase in our business, um, at least single digits every year, but one year, COVID doesn't count. Um, and double digits in more than 50% of the years we've been open over 15 years. So more than seven years, we've seen double digits. So we're doing something right. But I just, I guess from the day we opened our doors, we did something that spoke to people where we're doing the volume we've been doing and it's been growing significantly every year. So, but 
I don't know what success is, man. Yeah, well, I'm going to say I'm, I'm going to check the yes box to that question. I don't. Let's let's talk about the journey from Chicago to Los Angeles. Scary. Um, thought I knew it all. Uh, didn't. Going into a new market as an independent operator, um, and I live in LA. Lived in LA. Um, I, I I had to learn so many things over again. Um, it was quite a lesson. I got my butt kicked in certain ways. Um, I licked my wounds. I stayed in the game. That was really, really important. Um, a lot of amazing people around me, a lot of newer investors that we took in on the West Coast uh, continued to support us and be there to motivate and be there to as inspiration. And, you know, kid, keep going, keep going. Um, a lot of great neighbors were there to support us. Um, dips and highs and lows and the highs were super highs and the lows were super scary. Um, I think it's that way for anybody, anytime opening a new business, but going into a new market for the very first time as an independent operator, um, I learned a shitload. I learned, I learned a lot about how to go into another new market still as an independent operator. There are things that I do differently. There really are. And I, and I'm really, I'm so thankful. Cause I feel like I'm growing. I don't feel like I'm just opening a restaurant. I'm like giving birth to something, but I'm still growing in the business at 52 where I am still learning a shitload and, and I feel I'm kicking ass. So that as, as a personal growth for me, opening another unit, in another market and still having the passion and the drive and it still turns me on. I still love, I, I hate leaving the place, right? Even though I know I need to for a lot of great reasons, I, it, it was exciting for me and I learned a lot and I, and I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy and so thankful and, and blessed that I still love what I do and moving into a new market showed me that. So I kind of like, feel like it's, it's all new again. Fantastic. And uh, I want to talk about some of the unique things that you serve uh, 11 city root beer, of course, being one of them. Uh, but I'd love to get your take on a tougher subject and that's, the experience of the last year owning a small business uh, at the LA location is still not open. You went through a tough period there where you eluded. Talk about what that must've felt like to you as an owner and someone who's so passionate and has such love for what they do and what they built to see that business close and go through looting. Um, well, it's Chicago was the restaurant that was looted. Um, I was in LA at the riots and I, and I live, um, basically at the intersection, uh, one street, two streets away from, uh, Fairfax and third, um, I'm, I'm right there at the corner. So I, I saw what was going on. I was there literally physically there for it. Um, I was, when I was watching it on TV and when I had time to, get myself down to the restaurant. It, it took me a while, but I got myself through the traffic and I got to the restaurant. I live close to the restaurant, um, four minutes from the restaurant. I got there and, and look, I, I did the best I could to protect the restaurant. Um, what happened in Chicago where I wasn't, where we got looted, um, it was very violating. Um, I felt uh, naked. I worked my ass off to build something and that was the American dream. And to watch people on video and to see my restaurant ripped apart and uh, people do the physical things 
that they did in the restaurant that have nothing to do with even stealing stuff. Um, it hurt. And um, I, I had to heal from that. Um, I wasn't sure if I was going to reopen either restaurant. Um, what was broken and trashed in Chicago was just so hurtful. It was even more hurtful when our insurance company found a loophole and refused to pay us out. We're in litigation with that, which is a whole other story. But the reason why I even bring that up is somewhere during COVID and all this, when I thought I lost everything, everything. I mean, this is all my family has. This is all, this is all I do. This is really all I, I wanted, right? I mean, this, I found something to do that I love and I became part of a, two communities with neighbors and I saw kids grow up and I literally, and kids have kids, 15 years, you know, I saw a little peanut, you know, get married in their early twenties. It's like, it's weird, you know? It, it, I became part of the fabric of these two amazing neighborhoods, one in Chicago and one in Los Angeles. And we became part of the fabric of the neighborhood. And then I, it all got dark and I didn't think we were going to come back. And I found a lot of inspiration from my investors that stayed in touch with me and told me to keep my chin up. Um, there were a lot of people in LA, uh, in the city that touched base with us, um, a lot of, you know, wonderful people that said, please open back up. You know, this is important for our neighborhood. Um, neighborhood associations would reach out. There was a lot of encouragement. Uh, the help, the, the help that we got um, from everybody and, and the programs that were in place to help small independent restaurateurs like me were a lifeline. Um, something, you know, that groups were doing like Barstool Sports, if you know Barstool Sports. Sure. Um, you know, the stuff that he's doing for real families and real people. Um, WCK was a lifeline for a lot of restaurants, feeding people and vaccine stations. There were a lot of programs in place to help a lot of people. And without them, I wouldn't have weathered it. But my attitude and my drive and my desire, I'm a little embarrassed to say that it, um, it, uh, there were moments that I thought I was going to tap out. But because of all the programs and the people that came out of the woodwork and the regulars that would send us emails and our general boxes, a light bulb turned on for me. And the light bulb turned on about maybe four months ago, five months ago, fairly recently. And I said, you know what? Let's do this. Let's make a run for it. And since then, it's been, I mean, you can hear my voice. I, I hear my voice even sounding a little bit different while I talk about this. It still really hurts to see us violated and, and torn apart like that physically um, and attacked. I, I, I didn't do anything and I was just attacked um, and I thought I lost it all. And all the families that I employ, think about that. As restaurateurs, a lot of the people that are working for us, it's part of the fabric of our business. These people are sending money home or they're supporting multiple people in one house. It, it's, it, it's, very, it's very unique on how our industry feeds itself and, and how we feed our families. It's, it's, I shouldn't say unique, but it's, I'm supporting one person and that person is supporting multiple people in the same household. It's, and, and I guess that's true for any small business or any business to begin with, that's wrong to say. But when I lost it and, and close to two, almost 200 employees, there was a lot of weight. And I saw my dad own a business and, and I saw my dad close a business. And I, I, the people who worked for my father worked for him for 40 years. All right. And with him for four years is, is actually the, the real way to look at it and the way that it was. And I felt the same weight, but I didn't get a 40 year run. I felt like I was cut short and I found some kind of light and some motivation somewhere uh, several months ago. 
and I rolled the dice and I got back in it and I had a lot of really good people around me and, you know, a lot of great mental health checks from everybody. And, but luckily for me, I'm my father's son and I had the drive and I stayed in the game and Chicago is looking wonderful. Um, we are seeing a wonderful, a wonderful return. And you can now see me smiling. We're on, we're on video chat. Um, and I'm really excited for LA because we're trying to find people and gear up. And if we can find the people to open the doors, we'll open in a handful of weeks, but we got to find the people. Fantastic. So let's talk about some of the creativity that runs through the veins at 11 city. You've taken things that are traditional, like the potato pancake, for example, and you've given us what we always know and love <laughs> from, from, from our grandmothers. Lockies. But you've also got a new take. And I love yeah. that when you order new style, old style together, talk about yeah. new style and well, old, style. old school, you know, old school, new school. Um, when I first opened up, I, I didn't have street cred. I mean, people still don't know who we are, but if you're in the neighborhood, you know who we are. Um, old school diner delicatessen. I went with it and I kind of felt a little awkward. If I have to spell it out for you and tell you that we're an old school diner, how old school are you? But there's something about the old school diner and delicatessen fair that I just like it. And I don't want to do the sauteed gooey duck infused matzo ball soup and all the other wacky things that all these newest delis are trying. And by the way, are delicious and are crazy, wonderful and are addictive. And it's great. It's just not my bag. It's not what it doesn't speak to me. So, but there are times that I do want to play around. And uh, this is where I make myself sound um, uh, like a culinary um, um, expert. Um, but I am really in love with the Arby's potato cake. <laughs> as pedestrian as that sounds, we all, and that's by the way, that's part of what a diner's about. It's people say comfort food. There's just certain foods you don't want change. You want your hash browns a certain way. You want the, and by the way, a locky has to be a certain way, just like in Italy, a red sauce is a red sauce, but it's different. Um, like in Italy, it doesn't just range from region to region. It's also household to household, right? It goes across lots of cuisines. It's no different with Jewish cooking. My mom's matzo ball is different from your mom's matzo ball. My mom's uh, kreplach is different from yours. My mom's, you know, uh, kanish is everyone's. But when it comes to laki, it's no different, right? There's East Coast laki, West Coast laki, but then there's a regional thing, right? So I, we do our old school laki, which is, you know, um, uh, more like a hash brown, shaved potato, black pepper, um, uh, Parmesan, uh, no, no Parmesan, sorry, sorry, sorry. Cracked black pepper, uh, salt, um, a little, a little bit of garlic in there, just a little bit of garlic, right? Griddled to perfection, a little bit black, flash fried and still crispy, but thin. That's a lucky. That's what I grew up with. Okay. We wanted to have fun and I love the Arby's potato cake. And again, I felt I had license because it's a diner. I'm not trying to wow anybody. This isn't like I'm a wow factor. I want to just have fun and do the things that speak to me. And I was lucky that it spoke to other people. So our new school locky, which you can order two old school, two new school, or get four old school or four new school when you order a locky plate, you can mix and match. We thought we'd offer a new school locky. And the new school was a pounded potato cake, not a whipped potato, not a mashed potato, but it's pounded by hand. Um, we use a little Parmesan, black cracked pepper, a garlic, a little bit of onion, a tiny bit of onion in there, and it's deep fried. 
So when you get it, it's more like that potato cake that you get at RVs, if you can see me smiling. And it's fun. It's a whimsical play. I do not want to reinvent anything with any of the dishes that we're doing fun spins on. I'm not reinventing because that's part of that charm and that, that what people come to expect. And, and that's where I'm not competing with all the cool kids. I'm not, I'm not a cool kid. I'm like an old Jewish deli guy. I, it's, it's too late. I'm already 52. I'm still in the biz, right? COVID, COVID didn't close me. I, I, I have to wear that badge. I'm an old Jewish deli guy. But there's nothing wrong with having a little fun and taking some liberties as long as we're finding that our guests, it speaks to them. And, and the Lockies were one thing that did, and it stayed. Fantastic. And tell us about Eleven City Root Beer. Oh, wow. Um, it, my dad's very first job was a soda jerk. So I grew up in a house where he had a root beer barrel and he had a real soda fountain machine. So uh, when I was 10, 11, um, I was learning from my dad on how to make soda fountain creations because it was his first job and he actually bought one in the house. So my dad was a huge root beer drinker, as was my mom. Uh, that in tab, if I'm dating myself. Sure. Um, so we grew up in a house drinking soda all the time of root beer. And I don't know, I just was like a root beer fanatic, root beer candies, root beer this, everything was root beer, root beer rock candy. And you'd go to a restaurant and if I wasn't ordering Fresca, it was root beer. And root beer just stuck with me, probably also because Fresca disappeared once upon a time. And I don't drink any soda now except for my own root beer. And I loved it. And when we started, um, when 11 City started kind of really rolling and things kind of smoothing, um, I explored creating our own root beer. And I found an amazing root beer partner and someone that brews a recipe that we feel is the right head in it. Um, we're using 100% cane sugar, no corn syrup. Um, it's just oh so right. We played around with the blonde root beer for a little bit of time. Um, it didn't speak to people. It was too cool, a new kid fancy. Uh, we're going to be bottling it um, later this year, hopefully Q4 of 21. Um, the label looks super cool. That, that I'm really happy with. But, you know, going into a delicatessen in a chilled mug and pulling, right, that handle on the root beer barrel, just that look and the feel when you see someone draw that and you're going to do a couple draws off the barrel because the, the head and the root beer, there's, it's an experience. There's something about that. And you get a chilled root beer. And when it's not corn syrup and it's uh, 100% cane sugar with a little wintergreen in there, the right amount of wintergreen, it's like, this is root beer. And you can have two of them without it being too sugary. I would not suggest three or four because there's, there's a lot, there's still a lot of sugar in there, but it's, there's something about it. It's that experience with root beer. I think it's tied to maybe even the Lockies, right? It's, it's there, there's something that's there that having our own root beer, just like we do with the Bloody Mary mix. Um, you know, we sold what I thought was the best Bloody Mary mix out there in Chicago, which is still the top of the top. Um, it's from Twisted Spoke, great Bloody Mary mix. We were buying it for years. It was great. Um, I wanted a Bloody Mary mix that like would be rock star and that we'd call our own. And it took us nine and a half months and we bottle it now. And, and I'm just as proud of the root beer as I am the Bloody Mary. But again, it kind of makes 11, at least for me. And I think for our guests, it makes it, you come there and like you expect to pick up the Bloody Mary mix. And we just started selling it online and did it. We just started like, uh, two months ago, a month ago, because I wanted people to come in and get it. There was a reason I didn't do it. I wanted you, if you wanted my shit, you got to come in and have that experience because I, your root beer is going to be different at home over ice, which by the way, don't use ice for root beer. You're putting more water in your root beer. We're purists. 
even though I love a good crushed ice and root beer, it's phenomenal. And then the root, the ice tastes like root beer, right? The crushed ice because it's so sure. clear and then you eat it like a slushy. But as a purist, no ice in your root beer. So same thing with the Bloody Mary mix. I'm like, you want it? You got to come in and have it with the garnish the way we do it. And then COVID happened. And then I realized, well, people can't come in. So I just started putting the Bloody Mary mix online. But I, if you can hear the way I'm talking about it, I'm very attached to the root beer the way I am, the Bloody Mary mix. Um, and some of the other stuff like the old school or the new school hockey, because it's like it's like us. It's like something that we do and that obviously it, it, we're selling enough of it. That's why I say obviously only because people are buying it. Um, if I was throwing it out because they weren't, I'd say ah, they don't like it. Um, there are certain things that speak to people and it, it really feels good that we've the team has come up with these things that, that people keep coming back for. And it's a really cool feeling. It, it feels really nice. Fantastic. Well, I'm so pleased that you came out the other side in Chicago that Knockwood will be reopening in LA. Just to wrap, Bradley, are we looking at more 11 cities across, <laughs> across this great nation of ours? Um, I, I, that, that's 100% yes. Um, is I'm blessed with an amazing team in Chicago and LA. Um, I, I, I could not do it without them because this kind of independent business is all about people. And I think that's part of the magic of why I keep wanting to do it. It's what spoke to me when I would go to all these other places on the road. And I think it's why people are coming back and time and time again, um, not just for the food. It's, it's that, that interaction that happens. And I have to have the people. And our industry is challenged right now that um, people aren't, they're gone. They've disappeared for lots of different reasons. So if we can get people back, um, I'll do it. If not, I won't do it because I can't phone it in. I have to have that face on the floor. I have to have those warm servers that aren't taking your order, but they're engaging you. I have to have people that buy into our culture and call it home and get what it is that we're about and what we're trying to put out and that experience that we're trying to be consistent, which is one of the biggest challenges in independent business to be consistent with, because that's why they come back weekend after weekend. That's why they bring their parents. That's why they bring their friends, their out of town friends. That's why they come to us when they just need A, B, C, or D, because they know we'll deliver that consistency. And it's really based around our people and our team. And our industry is going through such troubled times of getting people to show up and want to work and do something that's has this physicality that, that a restaurant does, mm -hmm. right? With all the, the the physical labor. And if we can do that, um, it will be Las Vegas. It 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 will be it it will be another in California, you know. Um, it will be Miami. So Miami and Las Vegas are definitely on my wish list and on my radar. Um, I'm in Miami, you know, it's 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 interesting here. And Fantastic. I love Las Vegas. So the answer is yes, but it really depends on how our industry comes out of this. And can we get people to want to come back in the workplace and make a home? Remember, it's a generational thing too. You know, our, I have pre-COVID 62% retention of our staff. That, that, that's huge. So I'd love to open more, but I only if we can stay, if we can continue to create and put out an environment and have these families that we've had. And, and so far in two cities, we've been lucky. Well, Bradley, your passion and your perseverance and your commitment to performance and consistency is so inspirational. And I can't wait to get back to 11 City. Uh, 
in LA. We have a wedding I'm excited about in Chicago in October. And we booked our flight a day early so we can go to 11 city in Chicago. Oh, you're gonna let me know. I want to make sure I'm there to say I, hello. I will. And thanks so much for doing this. It was an absolute joy to talk to it, you. It, it, it means a lot that you, you took notice and that you get what we're trying to do and, and what the experience is about and that it speaks to you and that you, you think that we're, we're, we're a notable place. It means a lot to us. It, thank you. It's an honor. Mm -hmm.